Hello my partners in crime, welcome to Murder Analyzed. Now, today's case is the Joanna Yates case. Now, Joanne, um, well, I'm gonna call her Jo because everyone actually called her Jo, but it's Joanna Yates. Um, and this is an English crime. She was murdered in 2010, actually 17th of December 2010, so very close to Christmas. Um, she was a landscape architect and she was originally from Hampshire in England and she went missing from the flat that she shared with her partner uh, in a large house, actually it was a shared house and it all built into different flats in Bristol and she went missing on the 17th of December 2010. Uh, and she had been out with her colleagues and that was it, she was never seen again. Now this case, um, it's a solved case, another true crime solved case. And the perpetrator, um, is a lot more to him than just a murderer. So this case is going to bring in um, indecent images of children and stuff like that. This man was a nasty piece of work, okay? So there's lots of things in this case. This case also, though, um, brings up a lot about the press and different things and about how people think they can, or the, or the, the, the press fault that because someone looked a certain way, they could portray him as this killer and it wasn't him so it will look at that as well there's a lot of legal stuff in this really um, I mean this man was a liar okay so we'll go into him a little bit we're going to go into a little bit of his childhood and everything else about him but uh, he was a liar and he is a murderer and um, <laughs> he's a very very dangerous man actually anyway so warnings about what this case has got involved. So this is the Joanna Yates case. She was born the 19th of April, 1985, and she died on the 17th of December, uh, 2010. As I said, she was a landscape um, architect and she was a lovely girl. She had her whole life ahead of her. She had just moved in a little while before into this apartment that she shared with her partner um, and their life was planned out. She was a lovely, happy girl, keeping herself to herself. Her boyfriend just went away for a couple of days and it gave the killer an opportunity, really, to take Joe's life. So this is the Joanna Yates story. So th this case was such a highly publicized case, really, at the time when this girl went missing. I think as it was around Christmas time, she just disappeared without a trace. And I think people really, I mean, with anyone and any person that goes missing or where there's a victim of crime, especially around Christmas time, when all families are actually getting together. In Joanna's case, her family was searching for her. And I think the whole country, actually, this country got behind them and really wanted to know what had happened to Jo. Uh, and I think, you know, They'd done appeals and everything, her family for information and put out rewards, so did press and stuff like that. But her body was actually found on the 25th of December, actually, 2010, in uh, North Somerset. Now, I think she was found by dog walkers there as well. Now, at post-mortem, it had proven that she had been strangled. And this was literally one of the biggest murder inquiries, I think, um, or investigations around this Bristol area at this time. And I think actually one of the biggest murder investigations that Bristol's actually ever done in itself. So um, 
it did dominate the news. It, it was everywhere. There was nothing that you didn't know about Joanna. They'd done reconstructions. They'd done everything about her to try and show you. They looked at CCTV and stuff like that. They, there was a few bits of her on there, but literally this girl just disappeared, literally. So um, I think there was a rule. I think the, the rewards are about sixty thousand pounds for information, um, and I think you'll you'll find as we go through this case, you know, um, when I talk about the killer, because he actually gave information about somebody else, you know, you don't know what his motives were. Most killers like to be around the crime scene and they want to be around it because they want to know what's going on. And he was very much like that. So um, they just they just tried to do everything to, once they'd found the body really, to find out what really happened to Joe. So in this outline in this case, I want to bring in um, Christopher Jeffries. Now, Christopher Jeffries, I feel really sorry for him, actually. Now, the police initially suspected him. Now, they would. He was the landlord, okay? He owned this property, let out these flats, and he would have come under suspicion, as would anyone in them block of flats, all right? So that part of it was not wrong in this case at all. Um, they did arrest him, but he... And he was released after a few days, but it, it it really, the thing is with Christopher Jeffries, is the way the press depicted him, because he acted and looked a certain way. And I always say, you know, killers, they're no different than me and you. They don't look a certain way. They really don't. You couldn't stand someone in the crowd and think, he's a killer, he's a killer, she's a killer, she's a killer. You couldn't do it. But the press seems to think, because he was arrested, and um, you know for questioning and everything, I mean he was released, okay, without charge, so he was released. But the press just went mad. But this Vincent Tabak, now he was 32 year old Dutch architectural engineer, and he occupied on the third floor flat of that building actually, and was arrested on the 20th of January 2011. Now this is the killer. So you had now the police focusing on, first of all, Christopher Jeffries. And so this is where this case gets confusing and a lot of people think, well, if they made a mistake with that, they could make a mistake with this. So I wanted to outline this case for you so you can see who the characters are. So we have Joanna Yates that lived in these flats that only just moved in a short time before. You have Vincent that also lived in these flats on the third floor and he had lived there quite a long while. He lived with his girlfriend, actually. He had a partner as well. Uh, and he is the killer. And then you had Christopher Jeffries, who was the um, landlord of all of them, and really um, who the police did question, and then the press actually vilified as this murderer of this girl, and literally nearly destroyed this man's life. And so as we go through this case, and we, we deal with the murder, and then we deal with Vincent Tabak and all about him, we will finish with uh, Christopher Jeffries because really he was just as much a victim in this um, it's it's really shocking this and again it's it this wasn't the police that was targeting this man this was the press and then the minute the press then you know start to say you're guilty the public get behind them because they believe what the press is saying so there's a lots of legal issues here with the press and a lot were fined and it, you know it really hinders an investigation really it could have really have done damage to this investigation uh, so this is really what this case is about okay 
So jo Joanna Claire Yates was born on the 19th of April 1985 to David and Teresa Yates from Hampshire in England. She was privately educated, um, uh, I think at Emblem, Emblem Park uh, near Romsley and um, she's stunning, really well, she was a really good student happy student, really good student. She'd done her A-levels and stuff. Then she went on to do a degree in landscape gardening. Um, and then uh, she'd done actually a postgraduate diploma actually in landscape architecture at Gloucestershire University. So, you know, she was an educated girl, lovely girl. She was just lovely. So in two, I think in December 2008, actually, um, Jo met 25-year-old architect um, Greg um, Reardon. Now, he was at a firm um, in Westminster and the couple then moved in together in 2009. So this is who Joanna was with at the time of her murder. Now, um, they moved in and then they settled in Bristol, ma mainly because of work. Okay, they had work there, the company had moved there, so they moved with their jobs. They were happy there, they were setting up their own first little flat together. You know, these people had lives. These people really had lives. And just unfortunate that Joanna was in the wrong place at the wrong time here, because again, on this third floor flat, this um, man lived there. And I think if it hadn't have been Joanna, um, it would have been someone. He would have killed someone. So Joanna's flat was number 44. Now, um, it was a large house, as I said, it had been subdivided into these flats and the killer lived in another flat. So um, I think it was in um, Clifton suburb, actually. And that was in October 2010, okay? Um, it was really um, not long after she'd moved in there that she was murdered. So the facts of this case are, really, what we know of approximately 8 p.m. on the 19th of December 2010, um, her boyfriend Reardon returned home for the weekend, from a weekend to visit in Sheffield, his family in Sheffield, um, because it was coming up to Christmas and it was their first real Christmas together in their home, him and Joe, and so he went to see his family first so he could be back in time to spend Christmas with her. They had arranged a party on Christmas Eve and different things like this. So there was, we knew when Joe went missing that there was future plans. So we knew that something, uh, when you know that someone has future plans, you know, they're not just going to run off. They're, this girl had a life. So really, you knew foul play was at work here very early on. Now, of course, as with anybody, uh, any police officers or any police force, of course the boyfriend would have been a suspect in this case early on, but he was quite quickly, you know, cleared of any involvement, one, because he wasn't there, and two, this man was devastated, absolutely devastated. So anyway, he's gone away, and um, Joe's been left for a couple of days. She said to people that she was a little bit nervous about being left on her own. It was her first, sort of, she hadn't been in this flat long. It was new to her. The area was new to her. He was going away for a couple of days. And she thought, well, I'll just have some drinks with my colleagues and stuff like this, and, and I'll, it's only a couple of days, I'll be okay. That's what she thought, she'll be okay. And she should have really, shouldn't she, have been okay. So of course, when he was away, he was trying to contact her and ring her and stuff, and he couldn't get hold of her, and he thought that's a bit strange. 
usually she always picks up the phone or answers to texts or something, but she hadn't been. She just, she hadn't. So it was anyway, just kept ringing and, and then I think he decided, right, I'm coming home. And when he come home, there was no sign of her at all. And he thought, that's um, strange. And so he tries to ring her again, now he's in the apartment, in the flat. And as he rings her, the phone goes off because it's in her pocket, which is in the house. Now don't forget, this is Christmas time, 17th of December. Freezing, England is, you wouldn't go out without a coat. I don't think anyone, even in them days when they had a mobile phone, goes anywhere without their mobile phone. So he knew something was wrong. He knew something, because her bag was there, everything was there. And now the coat's there with the phone in the pocket. Um, I think there was two bottles of cider there, not drunk, not open, only little bottles of cider. And um, so now he's thinking something's wrong. So listen, Joanna was a cat lover. They had their cat. She loved this cat. And when he got back, he noticed not only was the phone in the pocket and the keys were there and everything else was there, but this cat had looked like it had been neglected for a couple of days. That wasn't like her at all. This cat was her life. So that really, I think, is what cemented in him that something was really wrong here. Because it wasn't just that the phone was in the pocket and the keys were there, the cat, the thing she loved so much, wasn't being looked after. And that was so unusual for Joe. So listen, he's rung around people and by about half past 12, he's like, this isn't uh, good. So he's rung the police and then he's rung her family. He's rung her mum and dad. So the investigating determined that Joanna had spent the evening on the 17th of December 2010 with colleagues from this Bristol um, Ram pub where she met all of them up. That was on Park Street and she left there about 8pm and she began to walk home and that was about a 30 minute walk. So there's certain amounts of CCTV but I think they were mainly in shops um, and that's where they picked her up. So she had told college, colleagues that she wasn't looking forward you know, to spending the weekend alone as it would have been her first time without him. Uh, and she, splend she, she planned to spend it actually baking and preparing for the parties that this couple had set up. So she's telling colleagues and stuff that she has plans to do things. That's also now um, cemented even to the police. Something's wrong here. So Yates actually, Joanna Yates was seen, I think, on closed circuit t TV at around 10 past eight. And I think in there she had gone into one shop and brought nothing, actually. Yeah, she had brought nothing, and that was in Waitrose. Um, I think the thing is with Jo, it's a new city. The friends had had a little drink with her. Now she's going home. She didn't really feel comfortable on her own. She missed him and stuff. And um, I think she just looked around Waitrose. Listen, I love Waitrose, and I, I don't know if she's walked around Waitrose and not brought anything. I wish I could do that, but she did. So I think for Jo, it was just passing the time, you know, go around the shops a little bit. And then what she does, the last known recording of her was buying a pizza um, from a branch of Tesco's Express at around 8.40 p.m. Now she had also brought two small bottles of this cider from a nearby off-license, um, it's called like bargain booze stuff and stuff. 
So we, we, we know that she was alive at 8.40 p.m. because she had brought this stuff and this was very close to our home. So as you can imagine, these parents are now frantic. Okay, you have their beautiful daughter that's just literally <laughs> disappeared, literally disappeared. They know the boyfriend hasn't done it. They know it's impossible for him to have done it. So what's happened? They know she's not gonna run off and do anything. She had made plans. They are fearing the worst. And then I think in some of these conferences that they did, you know, to televise and get her name out there, they had already stated they just wanted her body back. They just wanted her body back to bury. They just wanted Joe back. I think they knew from a very early on that Joe was probably not alive. And I think the police probably even realised that very early on as well. Now the strange thing is that they knew Joe had gone home. She wasn't abducted from the street. They knew she had gone home. And the reason they know that is because their CCTV footage showed her buying pizzas and the beer from the different shops. The beers or the cider was found in the home unopened but there was no signs of the pizzas at all. And there was a receipt saying that she had brought these pizzas and of course receipts have times on as well. So they knew that she had got home. There was no evidence of anyone trying to break in, any damage, any you know broken windows or nothing. So when we have all that evidence there, what you can assume is that she knew the person that she opened the door to, really. There seemed to be no struggle in there, no damage to anything. And I think this is when the police realised that, hang on a minute, it might be someone, or is probably someone, that she knew who'd done this. And I think it wasn't that they was wrong. Um, she didn't actually know him at all. Um, no, she never met him, really. But of course he had seen her, he had watched her. So there was no connection between Joanna Yates and her killer at all, apart from they lived in the same building. That was the only connection. So okay, on the 25th of December, the fears, wasn't it? The fear of, of, and the, the knowing or not knowing, I suppose, at that time, um, of what's happened to their daughter now becomes a reality because Joanna's fully clothed body was found in the snow by a couple walking their dog along Longwood Lane and it's near a golf course and it's next to this entry to a quarry uh, in uh, Fairlands and it's approximately three miles or 4.8 kilometres from her home so she hadn't been dumped very far from her home usually as we look at, don't we, when we talk about looking at, you know, um, where killers dump bodies and they like it local, they like, because one, they like to know what they're doing, where they're going to be seen, or, or easily to get away, and I think this is part of this as well. So um, the body was, um, you know, identified by the police as uh, that of Joanna, and her boyfriend and, the, and her family. Um, visited that site actually on the 27th of December. 
So David Yates said that the family had been told that to prepare for the worst and expressed his relief that his daughter's body had been recovered because we spoke about cases before, haven't we? But that doesn't happen. And I think they realised actually from, as I said, quite early on that this case um, wasn't going to end well. But at least they've got her body. And then the minute they've got her body, haven't they, the police then can go about then and do the forensic testing and stuff they need. Now the problem is as well, time of death. Um, we sort of know around about the time of death because we know from when she last consumed anything. I think on the autopsy there was no pizza. I think she had drunk a little bit of her cider, but there was no, pe no pizza at all in her um, stomach. So they know she hadn't eaten that pizza. So they know that the killer had took the pizza from that um, apartment or flat, if you'd like to call it, that she lived in. Um, and also because it was icy cold, the body would have been frozen, which is very difficult then to determine time of death. But it can preserve lots of other stuff for cold. So listen, this investigation then really kicks off, doesn't it? We now got a body. You know now she's been murdered. Um, we know now that she's been strangled because the coroner said she'd been strangled. A uh, certain way the body was laying and um, some things, and we'll go into that a little bit later. Um, that, it, she wasn't sexually assaulted, but there was some sexual, I, I don't know, tendencies in some way. You know, this was a sexually motivated crime, even though the penetration wasn't there. Um, and that comes out more to light down the end. But, um, yeah, she was strangled. She was strangled. So anyway, this is one of the largest, as I said, um, police operations for this constabulary anyway. So I think the operation was called uh, Braid and it comprised of 80 detectives, uh, civilian staff, um, and it's under the direction of Chief Inspector Phil Jones, Senior Officer of Avon and Somerset Constabulary, and he was of the Major Crimes Investigation Unit. And it became, as I said, one of the biggest ones anyway in history, actually of that constabulary's history anyway. So Jones urged the public, this detective, um, Phil Jones, he really urged, he was on this public, he needed, he needed something, he needed some evidence to come forward with any information, you know, to catch this killer, especially uh, potential witnesses who were in the vicinity of this uh, wood, uh, Longwood Lane, and, you know, um, where the actual body was discovered. Really important that, um, anyone in that area came forward and he really, really pushed for that. He pushed for this four-wheel drive, it was a light-covered four-wheel drive um, that they were really, really interested in because where her body was dumped, there was a little wall. Now, and I've said before, you know, when people try and move dead bodies, it's not that simple to move a dead body, it's a dead weight. And this man, luckily, couldn't throw her over. He tried to throw her over the... Um, um, wall but he couldn't do it and um, that's why she was found as quickly as she was so they, they knew that he, someone was on their own because if there was two people two perpetrators the body would have been over the wall quite easily now we're looking at one perpetrator that um, found it difficult to carry a dead weight and to try and get him over a wall so I think they examined the police also about a hundred hours of CCTV footage um, I think I think it was 293 tonnes of rubbish 
from around this area because don't forget you see they're looking for pizza boxes and stuff like this because she's brought this pizza so they went for everyone's rubbish they went for any discarded items of blood or anything anything like that that's what they did they really really went for this in a big way this investigation was actually really well handled at the beginning they was on it actually so you had Crime Stoppers, and Crime Stoppers is great in the UK, and it highlights a lot of stuff. And they offered a £10,000 reward. They actually done a reconstruction and stuff like this of um, what had happened. The Sun newspaper, and they come into it now, but they also come into it again later on, offered a £50,000 reward. Um, the authorities um, advised people living in this area to secure their homes. So you can imagine people in this area were really worried, weren't they? Um, and warned that women should not walk alone after dark because I think they thought and, as, and, and believe it if this man had not been caught for this murder he would have done it again now at the moment as I say with all these perpetrators this is the one that we know he's done there's a lot more come out about him since I don't I don't know if he's murdered anyone else um, I, and I, I'd never say he's, he hasn't um, as with many perpetrators but um, if he hadn't been caught, oh, absolutely, this would not have been his only one. Really, it wouldn't. So the police knew by the way the murder was done, I think, that the perpetrator was very dangerous towards women. I think speaking on the 29th of December, I mean, his, his daughter's just been found. The father of Joanna um, Yates stated that he's, he feared that the person that had done this would never hand herself in at all. And I'm telling you, this man would not have off. When, you, when we go over him and his background and what he was like, no. This man would never, ever have handed himself in. Of course not. You know, and I think the father understood that, but he was so concerned about other women around in this area at this, this time, thinking that this man, whoever killed his daughter, was still out there and was had the potential to kill somebody else. He was so fearful of that. And um, it just shows you, doesn't it, about the background and, and the, the family of Joanna Yates, of how even even after the death of their daughter, they were still even concerned about everyone else in that area, especially young women. So listen, they, when you're looking at someone that's killed like this, there's other unsolved crimes, and we've spoke about this before, there's many, many cold cases. Now, so they wanted... It was the Avon and Somerset Constabulary. They issued this appeal for anyone with any information about the death to come forward, but also about other murders or um, you know um, unsolved cases within this area and from other constables close to this area, so they could go over and see if this was linked to anyone else. Now the interest to them was this case. It was this 20-year-old uh, Glennis um, Carruthers and she was strangled in 1974. Melanie Hall, 25, who disappeared in 1996, and his body was discovered 13 years later. And 35-year-old Claudia Lawrence, who went missing in 2009. Now, no one's saying that, you know, he'd done any of them, but these are the ones that are cases that are still outstanding here. And as I said, it's took, you know, in this, one of these girls' cases, this poor girl, you know, it's took, years hasn't it to get her body found to give her family some sort of you know comfort that she's even been found so i think they identified you know similarities similarity similarities between um these and i i, I think really 
I think Hall's case was the other one that they really thought was close, and that was 2009. Um, but you see, again, with no evidence, you know, what can you, you do? Anyway, um, again, she didn't return home after meeting friends. This is what I said, we don't know the perpetrators because the evidence isn't there, and that's what you rely on, isn't it, to say that someone has killed someone. So there was evidence there in the end to say that he had killed Joe, but there wasn't evidence there to say that he was, you know, um, meeting anyone else or have killed anybody else around that time. Anyway, the police gathered um, surveillance video footage from Clif Clifton um, Suspension Bridge. Now, this is the bridge sort of that they would have had to have used to get to this point to dump this body. Um, and this, and, and it was also a direct route, I think, from her flat to where the body was dumped. So again, when we look at geographical profiling, you're looking, aren't you, at the easy exits, easy routes for these killers to use. Nobody really wants a dead body in their car for very long. They just don't. So they're always going to look for the quickest and easiest route to dump a body and get out of there. And the police sort of have known that's not always the case, but it's the majority of the cases. That's what happens. Um, so after listening on the 28th, by the 28th of December, it was a full-blown murder investigation. Now everyone was now looking for it. Paul Spotum had, as I said, post-mortem had indicated that she um, had died several days before being discovered. Uh, the examination confirmed that Yates had not eaten the pizza that she had purchased. So there's all these little clues that the police are trying to add up here. Um, now, again, there was no evidence also at all that Joanna or Joe was sexually assaulted in any way. But that doesn't mean to say this is not a sexually motivated crime. I think the police in Bristol were so concerned about this killer that I think even um, East uh, Bristol's um, East, I think the MP um, Kerry McCarthy gave her support actually for a mass testing. Now we've had this before, and we've had lots of uh, you know killers that we've done mass testing for. So in a certain amount of area, everyone will have their DNA taken. You know they can't make you, but usually if you've got nothing to hide, you go and give your DNA it'll be tested and then it's literally destroyed after that um, and I think she that a lot of people were backing that and a lot of people wanted that because really this DNA screening process is sometimes the only way you know that you can sometimes catch a killer so um, I think when they can I think it was 1985 wasn't it or 1995 into the disappearance of um, Louis Smith was the last time they'd done this massive testing actually in this area uh, and as I said DNAs but DNA the collection of DNA the reliance actually on having people to do it voluntary is good but it's a lot of manpower the cost of doing DNA sometimes does limit the um, police's ability to do it I'd say um, but in this case yes they was they was going to do that in, in a big way they, they needed to find this killer now because they had found DNA on Joe's body. Now this was tested for a potential profile and it wasn't there. Now I always say, you know, these databases are great, of course they are, but unless the perpetrator's already been caught, the DNA won't be on file, will it? So that's, 
they're great, but they're only great if, if the perpetrators had the DNA taken before for any other reason or something like that. But, you know, I think what the police were looking at really when they done they found that DNA then detectives then began to track all the local um, sex offenders you know on the register um, living within that jurisdiction and you know there was there was quite a few actually and that was you know they wanted to know where everyone was on that 17th of December now look a lot of these were you know eliminated very very quickly um, because it wasn't them so it, you know once they sort of put that out you think okay you have a an offender here that you know is probably going to kill again you know he hasn't been caught because his DNA is not on there so now the case becomes much more focused on okay we need to get this person really quickly and there was a lot of manpower in this so shortly after 7 um, a.m. I think on the uh, 1st of December 2010 Christopher Jeffries um, Joanna's uh, Joe's landlord who had lived in the flat at the same building was arrested on suspicion of murder. Now he was taken to the local police station and questioned for several hours why forensic investigations um, you know inspected his flat. Now listen that's not I think what Jeffries has got a problem with. He never has had a problem with that and nor would anyone else. You know if you're not guilty of a crime uh, and there's no evidence well we say that but we've had a few cases where people are charged with it but anyway there was nothing really now so he was taken there and on the 31st of december a senior police officer granted the investigators 12 hour extension or to the arrest to enable them to hold him in custody for additional questioning they're allowed okay now that, that that's the process they're allowed if they blink they've got some evidence you know the man owns the building he may have had a spare key because remember there was no forced entry into joe's she would have known him so would she have let him in this is what the police are thinking all right, so they are in their right to have him as a suspect, as with anyone else, though, in the building, really. Anyway, they focused on him a little bit too much, but the police subsequently applied for the magistrate for further extension, and that was granted on the 31st of December and the 1st of January. So investigators were able to detain him as a suspect up to 96 hours but released Jeffries on bail two days later. Now, he retained actually um, legal um, services and um, because he needed it, because this man knew he was innocent and he was saying, I'm innocent. He, he knew the process was going on, but I think he even thought this process is going on now a little bit too far. I've, I've sort of justified why I didn't do it. I've got, you know, you know, alibis and stuff. Anyway, on the Mar in March, I think on the 4th of March 2011, police released him on bail and he was, um, and actually they stated that he was no longer a suspect, okay, because he had proven by evidence that he was not the perpetrator of this crime. Now, he subsequently won, actually, um, an undisclosed sum of money for libel and damages and defamation. Uh, about news articles that were published about him following his arrest and he received a, um, actually an apology actually from the Avon and Somerset police for any distress that he would have been caused during this investigation. Now, people say, oh well, you know, someone's been murdered. The thing is with this, when we have 
you know, trial bar media. And that's really what it was with Jeffries. The whole focus could have gone towards Jeffries. Well, the presses did. And what this then does, it takes their place. Luckily, they wasn't so blinkered because they had released him out without charge. But the press continued to hound him because of the way he looked like. He's eccentric. This man was an English teacher for years. You know, who says how we should dress, what we should look like? Does it make us a murderer? You've been questioned, as you would do, because you are a suspect because of the circumstances around where you live and what you own and, and access and stuff like that. But that's all you are, is a suspect. But this press went for this man, how he looks. You know, they called him terrible names. They really defamed him, this man. It was shocking, actually. And I think that then took it away from the case. Because the police, luckily, weren't so focused on Jeffries. They'd actually moved on. Their concentration, actually, it's the first time I've said this about police in a very long time, but they were very, very focused on, all right, they may have questioned him for too long and their focus may have been on him too long, but once they'd realized that they'd got the wrong man, it wasn't him, their focus then turned back to the people that they should be looking for, or the person they should be looking for. The press didn't do that at all. And yes, they were sued and we'll go into that a little bit later on. So anyway, now we think, okay, if it isn't Jeffries, this is what the police are thinking, it's someone probably in this building that's done this murder. So, the real breakthrough came really. First of all, actually, there was this reconstruction actually on BBC um, Crime Watch, I think, and that was done in January 2011. And there was a lot of response, I think over 300 people actually contacted the police from that one you know, um, reconstruction of um, the movements of Joe and stuff like that. And they really highlighted this case. They really wanted to catch this killer. So this breakthrough came when this lead investigator believed that um, Joe's body had been um, transported in a large hold or bag or a suitcase. And uh, on the morning of January the 20th, um, a 32-year-old architectural engineer, Vincent Tabak, who lived with his girlfriend, in the flat next door to Joe, was then arrested under suspicion. So that's the breakthrough. Now I want to talk first before we go on, uh, I suppose about how the public felt about that and how he nearly got away with it, I suppose, because remember I said about this press, this press and how they really started to focus in on Christopher Jeffries and so of course what this Vincent was saying well they've got the wrong man there they're just doing this to me and so it put doubt in people's minds and this is what happens when the press get involved into a case and, and release things and start pressuring other people innocent people and and really defaming them this is what happens it can really hinder a case and this was what was happening in the Yates's case. Now a lot of young females actually um, had contacted the police and stated about this <laughs> this horrible man. They really had. So and I think also I think people were really concerned for 
Joanna's parents at this time. You know, they've had this loss. This crime watch was such a good um, reconstruction. It was in detail. It gave a lot of um, people um, the need and the want, I think, to help in this case. But anyway, he was arrested. And um, I, before we go on to the actual everything about him, I want to talk about his background so you understand about this man's upbringing, his background, his character, before we go into the actual summing up of this case. So Vincent Tabak was born on the 10th of February 1978. He's a Dutch engineer who had lived and worked in the United Kingdom from 2007. There leaves the door open. Did he do other murders? Did he do the Hall murder in 2009? We don't know. Anyway, he was the youngest of five siblings and he was raised in Erden, Urban, Erden, 21 miles from um, Ederhaven, uh, now Dutch. Um, he was, Vincent was childhood's next door neighbour actually, John. He describes him as being, um, as an intelligent, introverted loner. Now, when you look at profiling, these are the things that usually stand out, you know, and I, when I look and I look at his sort of background, how people describe him, it's very much like, I, I don't know, I've done so many of them, but when, especially when they say loner and stuff like that, and this, you know, it's quite an intelligent man and, and, and stuff, he, um, he he's, he's on that, He's got traits, if that's how you want to say it. He's got the traits, okay? So, um, he studied actually at the University of Technology and he began in 1996. He graduated with a Masters in Architectural Building and Planning in 2003, then began a PhD um, in which his thesis was to study on how people use spaces in office buildings. So, this man, and in public areas, right? So in office building and public areas. So this man, intelligent man, right? He's done a PhD. This, when he's looking at how people use spaces, you know, offices or in, you know, public spaces, he's looking at behavior. That's what he's looking at. When you really think about it. He's understanding human behavior because he's designing these buildings on human behavior. What's best? humans how they use their space what they do so he looks doesn't he he must take in all that information really he must understand human behavior so this makes him quite a dangerous man actually anyway these papers were published i think in 2008 and he left university in 2007 and he moved to the united kingdom um in i think for work actually he took a job in the headquarters of bruno um Harpend as this engineering consultant firm in Bath and he settled in the flat in the town. He worked, I think, for a little while um, as a people flow analyst, which he is, so he's analysing. And his role required him to examine how people moved around, as I said, in these public spaces, spaces and also in sporting areas and stuff. So this man is clearly, clearly, by what he does, not only is an intelligent man, but he's a people watcher man. So if you are now a perpetrator and you're 
of murder, this sort of background where you understand human behaviour is a really good tool to have, isn't it? Really. So look, while living in Bath at that time, um, he established a relationship with a woman and he first met her through this Guardian's newspaper. It's an online dating site actually called Soulmates. And um, I think she later described the newspapers that this was his first serious girlfriend and he paid tribute to her acknowledging this in his thesis um, where he wrote, you know, and um, she, he said that she, <laughs> he was happy and that, you know, really that was his life. And when she entered his life, his life changed. Uh, well, you know, I call it this mask of sanity, don't I? You've got one face of someone like him, and the minute that mask is removed, it's a real person underneath the evilness that is underneath. Because when we go deeper into this man, of what this man was really like, um, you can tell he definitely wore the mask of sanity really well, really well. Enough, actually, that his girlfriend and the families all didn't believe that this man was a murderer and had done this murder. Now that was also though backed up, as I've said, by the press, you know, really intimidation and absolutely terrible behaviour of the press towards some innocent man. But this is what, you know, they actually set up this page, you know, um, to help with fight for his legal fees because they believed him so much. These people are manipulators. This man was a manipulator. He manipulated everyone around him. He came across as this normal, intelligent, happy man. This man is a killer, literally, and a lot more, a lot more. So the couple, they moved together you know, this loving couple, you know, he's in love, she's changed his life, and they moved into this flat in 2009. So, although Joanna um, and her partner moved into um, the neighbouring flat in late 2010, she and Tabak did not meet prior to 17th of December. He never actually spoke or met to this girl, ever, at all, before he actually knocked on her door on the 17th of December. So Vincent Tabak never pleaded guilty to this murder. Straight, well, he didn't really. Then when he did, he tried to take it back. Because as I said, he's had these people fundraising with him and I didn't do it, I didn't do it, I'm an innocent man. Even though he'd even tried to set up actually um, <laughs> Christopher Jeffries and this, this was his downfall. Um, I think with with Vincent, he believed he could manipulate anybody, and um, even the police. And so when he was being questioned, he was questioned for about 96 hours actually himself as well, and he didn't really admit it. He didn't actually admit it until the 8th of February, when he told uh, Peter um, Boverton, um, he was a prison chaplain, that he had killed her. And, uh, and he intended to plead guilty. And on the 5th of May 2011, Vincent did plead guilty to the manslaughter of um, Joe, but denied murdering her. He um, pleaded 
the guilty of man actually the guilty charge of manslaughter was rejected actually by the Crown Prosecution Service for reasons being that when we look back now at when they've done a search on Vincent's property where he lived with a girlfriend who was subsequently away that weekend out with her mates actually I don't mean she was away she was out with her mate that night on the 17th of December having drinks you know it's coming up to Christmas all the colleagues were getting together everyone's out aren't they partying and she had left him at home and he was texting her I miss you I love you and all this stuff why he's murdering Joanna Yates that's what this man is doing so when the police then finally arrested him and then checked out his you know searched his apartment they took away all the computers this that, and the other on his search bar you know in Google when you do your searches whether you want to try and delete them or not, they're going to find them. He had been researching um, about defences for murder and manslaughter. He had also been researching how, really, to get away with murder. Um, how long can a body be left outside? What does the cold weather do to a body? How long can DNA last on a body? All these sort of things. You know, the proof, as I said before, the definition of murder is to take somebody's life, you know, with the intent right, malice of forethought to take that person's life. So I think with what he, when he said manslaughter, he tried to say that he knocked on Joanna's door, she invited him in. Now we don't know because Joanna's dead. So we know she invited him in. He could have said, oh, yeah, I've lost something or I'm locked out, anything. She would have recognized him because he'd lived in the same building. She would have recognised and understood that he had a relationship with a girl and he lived next door with, with someone and he was in a relationship. So again, when we talk about human behaviour and he knew human behaviour, this would have relaxed Joe to open the door to this man. He said that she's invited him in. She's invited him in, we started chatting. She started to be flirty with me. She was, you know, coming on to me and then when I started kissing her she started then to say no and so I just held my hand over her neck for just a little while a few seconds <laughs> and killed her that's what he said so in the search of this property when the police have gone through not only have they found that this man has been researching stuff about um, manslaughter, the difference between manslaughter and murder and how hard it is to prove, how long a body can last outside, how long you know it takes to deteriorate DNA, this, that and the other. He's done all this, but he's also researched pornographic material and absolutely some of the worst pornographic material. It was about bondage and it was about um, <laughs> lots of different things um, to the most severe level and also child um, indecent images of children, um, you know, very high grades as well. So this man, they believe, because he's never going to tell you the truth, they believe that he has entered, you know, Joanna's flat with some ruse, something. He's then quite quickly attacked her. Uh, he said, you know, as he said, just, you know, put my hand on her throat. I think when I read out in a little while, the injuries to Joe were not just that. And as I've said before, in many cases, when people say, I strangled her by accident. No, you, you really can't strangle someone by accident. It takes a lot of effort and strength 
to hold someone around the neck and choke the life out of them it really does and a lot of the times that is the sexual gratification they need not the act now when joe was found when her body was dumped in the snow she had her top part of her top lifted up showing one of her breasts she looked very similar to the photographs of the pornographic images that he had been um, looking at thousands of them thousands and thousands and thousands of them and the way her body was left was very similar to that actually nearly identical to that even the look of her so as i've said with perpetrators before they have a type don't they and this was his type um so we don't really know what happened in that part we're assuming that's what happened the police are assuming that's what's happened in there because this man of course wants to plead manslaughter so of course it's all going to be her fault because he's thinking she's not here is she she's dead it's my word against hers it's so difficult isn't it to prove murder what's the intention there to kill joanna yates on the 17th of december 2010 or was it not it's very difficult and very difficult to prove but i think the prosecution knew with this man and the way that he had tried to manipulate and lie about it and stuff you know there was more to this man than met the eye plus this then he was charged also on top of of that for the indecent image of children and given an extra 10 months on his sentence 10 months that's what he was given for the disgraceful disgusting indecent images of children that they found on there listen pornographic images are legal but they're not legal if they're children and some of this man's whole character now as we see him was developed at a very young age he has said that he likes this sort of it was like bondage and dominance and, and stuff that he liked and um, again it's another one that we see as has gone from escalated from looking at the images to now being a perpetrator and wanting to fulfill some of them um, you know <laughs> feelings and thoughts that he had and I, you know and I don't know when it would have become children but it would have been he was looking at all of it so anyway, poor Joe, um, her life was ended by him that night for reasons really. Um, it, I think the only thing you can take from this case really on, on why he did it, on his motive, would have been sexually, sexual gratification for him only. That was it. His girlfriend was out drinking. He'd done the murder. He took the pizzas actually. He put Joe's body in his car. I think he went to the shops. I showed some CCT of him around the shop so he could be seen. This man tried everything he could not to be caught. He then said he saw um, Christopher Jeffrey's car and it was turned the other way, um, trying to impl implicate him in that murder. And uh, for a little while it worked then, didn't it, really? Until it all came out with DNA evidence and stuff. And the DNA evidence actually was he had gone back to um, his family. Uh, and of course they all believed him, didn't they, at this point. Uh, he'd gone back to them and um, one of the investigators, because they were still after 
information, different information, because don't forget this man was only a witness at one point before he'd become the suspect. He sort of said, um, oh well, I know um, Christopher Jeffries. I actually did see him. He started then adding to his story because two things Vincent Tabat got wrong. He thought the police were stupid and I think he thought everyone else around him was stupid. He thought he was such an intelligent man that he could get away with murder. But you had this detective, this woman, who flew out because he said he had information, you see, because he wanted to know what's going on. He needs to know, what do you know about this case? So of course I'm going to tell you things just to make you come here. You know, I'm on holiday and uh, come over and see me and I'll tell you everything I know, what I saw, I forgot to mention that part before, I forgot to mention this part before, he was adding more and more on to try and get Christopher Jeffries back arrested, but you know, to, the focus to be put on him, but also to question the police. And he also did ask questions to her also about DNA and the body and stuff. Now this young um, investigator, this woman, detective, she said to him, she just said she had a funny feeling. Because of the way he was behaving, because of the things he was saying. So she just said to him, can I take your DNA? It's just to eliminate you. But in her mind, she's thought, I need to check this man out. This man needs to be checked out. And really said it was his own downfall. You see, a lot of killers are like that. They want the limelight. They want to be in the know. And so they make mistakes. Or else if this man hadn't have done that, he probably wouldn't have been caught. And that's how they got his DNA. And he willingly give it, you know, I think that she said he was a bit worried at the time of giving it, but they, they got it. Because the minute you do all that, and then you say no to giving your DNA, then you are a suspect then. And I think this is what happened with him. And so when he went to court, he then tried to say manslaughter, this, that, and the other. Uh, try to blame Joe, as I always do. It's never them, is it? It's never them. They're never a sexual predator, are they? It's always your fault. And I think this is what they he he tried to do. And um, the police and the, the courts and the jury saw straight through him. I think with him, I don't I don't think we've heard the last of him. You know, I don't I don't think this was his first murder. Listen, it weren't greatly planned. This murder. Did he walk into her home knowing that he was going to kill her? We don't know because this is the whole thing, isn't it? About you know, um, getting evidence to where you can prosecute for murder is we're not mind readers, are we? We don't know what's on the perpetrator's mind, and it's only from the evidence that you form your decision. And I think the prosecution put such a good case together, and, and I think. It, he, you know, by incriminating himself the way he did and, and stuff, you could tell. And I think by the other um, images and stuff that he had on his internet, his searches and stuff that he had, you know, this is a dangerous man. And I think the jury really, that came through a lot. But if this man could have got away with murder, he would have. He really would have. So I think in this case, the police and the public, because the public and, you know, the BBC for Crime Watch and stuff like this, you know, yeah, they are the ones that solved this case, really. And they've done such a great job. And finally, you know, 
in the end, Joe got justice and so did her family. Okay, so <laughs> I'm going to talk a little bit now about this internet pornography and stuff and a little bit more on his background because I really want to home in how bad this man was. So listen, he came from Amsterdam and, and stuff and he used to fly all over the place actually for his job. So in the months leading up to Joe's um, death, um, Vincent used his computer to research escort agencies. So this poor girl right, that he was living with and who thought he loved her and, um, you know, the relationship was great and she had done this fundraiser to, to help him, is now hearing not only is this man a murderer, but in the whole relationship that they have been in for a few years where she was this loving, normal relationship. You know, here comes the mask now coming off, okay? This mask is now coming off. And this is what you're really living with now. The shock to this girl and her family must have been terrible, actually. So anyway, listen, um, he had seen many, many sex workers throughout the whole relationship um, with her. He had re researched escort agencies um, during his trips in the United Kingdom as well as in the United States. Uh, he'd contacted several workers by phone. He met them. He also viewed violent internet pornography and um, depicted women being controlled by men, showing images of them being bound, gagged, held by the neck and choked. Now, during this murder investigation, you know, um, a lot of women were interviewed about him, the local um, sex workers, and he was meant to be known as um, uh, things that he liked to do, even to these poor sex workers, was terrible, really. So his fantasies, as I said, were coming from his constant use of online sources to then coming in to reality. And this is what was really happening in Vincent's mind. This is what he really was like underneath <clears throat> in this person. Now, um, I think one of the pictures, and as I said before, did depict a girl that looked very similar to Jo, and, and she was also, her clothing was arranged very similar to how Jo was left. So it's like he took the image from the computer of this violent attack on a girl on this internet site to Joe. So was he playing out, was the murder part of the playing role that he was playing out in his mind, but now, now it came from, you know, virtual into reality. I think this is what was really happening with him. Listen, he was um, a nasty piece of work, this man, a dangerous piece of work. Um, and I think as we now go into looking at Joe's autopsy, um, it shows you just really how dangerous this man is. Now at the trial, as I said, the prosecutor, barrister, Nikki Likely, QC, urged that the evidence of um, Vincent's activities should be provided to the jury. Now this might shed some light, he says, on what held, um, how to hold a woman long enough and how to then squeeze her hard to take her life details of um, you know Vincent viewing this pornography 
were not included in the prosecution's case since the judge believed that it did not prove that Tabak had acted with um, <laughs> preterm. He, he, didn't, he didn't think, oh, I'm going to go in there and kill her. I think it was wrong with the judge. I think this was evidence showing this man's personality, right? Not that it hindered the jury so much in other ways, they brought it in other ways. But you have history of a man that is, you know, viewing violent content, violent content about hurting women. And then you're trying a man for the murder of hurting, killing a woman. And the picture was so close to the reality. So the online and the virtual and the reality was so closely linked that I don't understand why the judge did not allow that in. But, you know, the thing is, it could have come back on appeal that if he had. So, I, but I, I think there was a close link there and it should have been allowed in. Not that it really stopped it, but it should have been, it would have sealed his fate even longer. It would have given the jury more and more and more to understand about the character of this man if that had been allowed in. Anyway, after the trial, it emerged that this pornographic image of his children had been found on his laptop and in December 2013, the Crown Prosecution Service announced that they would prosecute for, you know, the possession of these images. So on March 2015, um, he was found guilty actually of possessing more than 100 indecent images of his children and was sentenced to 10 months in prison to run concurrently with his existing life sentence that he got for the murder of Joe Yates. Now, disgraceful, yes, 10 months. I think they should have given him a lot more for that anyway. The trial of Vincent started on the 4th of um, October, I think, 2011, at the Crown Court in Bristol, and Justice Field and the jury and his counsel. Um, and the trial actually, um, I think William Clegg actually, QC, the prosecutor. Um, I think I think with this trial, um, people were a bit shocked at it. I think people were shocked, one, because they actually all thought it was Christopher Jeffries that had done it because of the newspapers. And then they thought, well, you know, did she come on to him? Because he had gone, the boyfriend had gone away, her girlfriend was out, it's Christmas, was she drinking? She'd been out and had a few drinks and stuff. And I don't think it was until the autopsy with Joe that revealed that she had about 40 other injuries on her, um, as well as being strangled. That this was, you know, um, a real murder. This was not manslaughter. This was not, uh, you know, a meeting of two people um, that had gone wrong, should we say. This was murder. Now, whether it was premeditated, whether he knew in his mind, as I said, that he was going in there to do it, we are not mind readers. No one is. But the jury on the facts of this case found him guilty of murder and he got life. And I don't think, as I said before, this is anyone who's done. But, you know, um, we will have to wait and see about that. So listen, this defence has said, in Joe's case, that the reason they, they believe that nothing that he was saying is true about Joe, because this man was quite a large man, he was a lot taller than her, I think he was like 30 centimetres taller than her, uh, and he was 
quite a heavy a bloke and he overpowered her. He pinned her down on the floor by her wrists and you can tell that by the injuries to her body. And I think, I think there was, um, I think there was 43 um, separate injuries to her. And this was to her head and to her neck and to her torso. There was also cuts and bruises and a fractured nose. So it's not manslaughter, is it? Really? Not really. It's not like what he said, where he just walked in, put his hands around her throat, you know, and he was getting a bit excited and she was saying no. And he accidentally killed her. That's what manslaughter is, didn't mean to do it. Oh, he meant to do it. The girl's injuries showed that this was a murder. And the way the body was left shows it was a sexually motivated murder taken from a photo online which he had been viewing to virtual, to reality. And it's such a sad case, isn't it? Of this poor girl, really. When you think that, you know, one minute you've moved into this place and you're starting up your life and you're happy and you, you, your boyfriend's gone away to see his family for a couple of days, you're gonna plan your Christmas and your first parties in your home and the neighbor that lives next door to you that you never really spoke to you may have glanced at him or seen him you know it's made you feel that comfortable as you walk past he might have said hi or the girlfriend might have said hi you, you your guard has dropped and on that one night you know you've opened the door to a killer and that was really the case of journey Yates. the rest of the is it where the um press were prosecuted actually um I think will try to be prosecuted for their actual assault on um, Christopher Jeffries and they were fined and everything else. But I think everyone learned lessons from this case, really, the press, everyone learned lessons from this case. Because I think if you're putting out all this false information and you are trying to target someone that is innocent because of the way they look, you know, you're vilifying this person because of the way they looked or act, even though there was no evidence against them. You cannot judge someone's character by the way they look or may act. That's not it, not in murder. Murder must only ever be about evidence, what you gather, so you can get a clear distinction of really what happened. So, you know, um, as I said, in this case, it's a strange one really because I don't believe this is the last we've heard of Finston Tobacco, I don't at all. Um, but Joanna, rest, Joanna Yates is at rest now and I wish her family all the best. Um, as for him, well let's see what happens to Finston as we go through the years. But I think this man was a very dangerous man. But this case is more about Joanna, I want to remember Joanna because what a lovely, lovely girl. And her life again, taken by someone. It's just evil. And underneath that mask, I've said it before, you can live with someone, you can be with someone, you can have a neighbor with someone. You don't really know someone, do you? It just shows with this case. I mean, there was a lot of victims in this case, but the major victim was Joanna Yates. So, 
thank you for watching i'm glad you found this case interesting well i hope you do um you can follow us on instagram and on um, facebook this will be on spotify the next case coming up it's a christopher halliwell case oh my gosh nasty piece of work this one um it's quite a graphic case actually but he is mad um i think um i think there's two murders that he's been charged with but there's <laughs> It is a scene. There is many, many more of what this man has done. So, thank you for watching. You know what to do. You know, make sure you put all these thumbs up. Make sure you, you know, hit the subscribe button. Um, hit that bell for notifications of what coming up. Now, this case will be on my members part, as I've said before, um, for the first 24 hours before it's released to anybody else. They do get exclusive cases anyway on um, the members lounge. But from now on, they will have these cases, um, which are going out public, they will have them first for the first 24 hours. So I hope they're going to enjoy them. So, until the next time. Bye-bye.